He was once one of Europe's most wanted fugitives. He used his natural charm and a seemingly sizeable fortune to con scores of people into handing him their money. One of his victims was Carolyn Woods. Over the course of an 18-month relationship, Mark Achlam tricked the divorced mother of two out of several hundred thousand pounds and then disappeared, leaving her penniless and suicidal. Carolyn has written a new book about her ordeal and has agreed to tell me her story. Carolyn, thank you for joining me on the Mail Plus True Crime podcast. Some people, particularly women, might read about your story, a whirlwind romance with a man who turned out to be a serial con man and think, that couldn't happen to me. I wouldn't be gullible. I wouldn't allow that to happen to me. What would you say? Because from what I can gather, you, you, you hadn't had a relationship like this before and, and suddenly things got out of control and you lost a lot of money. £850,000 in a matter of months, didn't you? I did, yes. Um, I think I probably would have thought this would never happen to me. Um, One of the reasons I would have thought that was that actually at the time there had been quite a bit of information given out about the pitfalls of internet dating. And so I was very wary about any sort of online contact with anybody and I didn't indulge in internet dating I think at that time, it hadn't really occurred to me that in a real-life encounter, you could be just as vulnerable and just as easily deceived. Um, I think because this man appeared to enter my life out of the blue by chance, it never occurred to me that that could have been a setup, which is actually what I believe it was. Did you consider yourself, before meeting Acklam, that you were a, a gullible person, someone who would be overly trusting, saw the good in people. Did you see yourself like that? I didn't see myself as being uh, particularly gullible. Um, I've always been a trusting person, or I had up until that point, and that had always served me very well. And I'd always been brought up to be honest myself and truthful. And I suppose I had lived in quite a sheltered environment, which I did recognise that I'd been fairly privileged and I'd had a very comfortable life really but I didn't think I was particularly gullible I mean I actually thought you know I was 54 years old I'd been through life so I think it's very difficult if you're a fairly honest and kind trusting person to imagine that anybody could be as deceitful as this particular character was. So it's 2012 when you first met him and he walked into a shop where you were working. Can you talk me through that and and what your situation was then? Because you'd been married before, hadn't you? You had two grown-up children and you'd moved to the West Country and suddenly this real-life James Bond, to quote your book, walked into your shop. Yes, well, I had been divorced nine years previously, so I'd been a single person for quite a long time and actually really enjoyed my independence, I have to say. Um, I wasn't looking for a man in my life and I had actually said to 
friends of mine, you know, if I ever show any signs of sharing an address with anybody, have me locked up because I've obviously gone mad. And I moved to an idyllic little rented cottage outside Tetbury, got myself a job. I didn't want the kind of job I had before, which was in a sort of big corporate environment. And um, I got a job in this lovely shop, which was, you know, bought me a small income, but also helped me to integrate into the life of the town. And really, at the time, I couldn't have been happier. And then on that particular evening, it it was in the winter in January, near closing time, and I heard the the bell on the door ping and I looked up and this man was standing there and I have to say that actually that in that sort of split second there was a sort of charge <laughs> so he, he wasn't like anybody else. Almost too good to be true I suppose but maybe easier to say that now now we know the truth about him but. Yes I mean I, I think one of the attractive things about him was his energy and he was very exciting to be with and I think a lot of people who have met him would agree with that. I mean, he was incredibly exciting. I had met a couple of other men, you know, in their 50s, far more set in their ways and stayed. And he was like a breath of fresh air. But things moved on quite quickly. Yes, well, he came in at around five o'clock and we um, we closed at half past five. And so he just sort of hung around, but not in a way that made me uncomfortable or anything. He was very chatty. And in the middle of our conversation, a friend of mine came into the shop And she had been out walking and had gone past a house that I had thought of buying. I'd viewed it and actually had decided against it. And she came in and said that she thought I should think again. So that could have alerted Mark Ackland to the idea that I was looking for property. In fact, I went on and explained to him that I was looking for a house to buy and was finding it very difficult. And uh, he and I just carried on talking until I told him I had to shut up shop. And then he, in a roundabout way, he asked for my telephone number, which I did give him. Did you have any doubts about that? I mean, was that the sort of thing you'd normally do? (laughs) Yeah, I did feel a bit flustered, I must say. I mean, it's very difficult to be objective with the benefit of hindsight. But I I sort of rationalise it by thinking, which is true, I hadn't thought of myself as vulnerable, but I was in a new place trying to get to know people and make new friends. And I think maybe I was a a bit more open than I might normally have been. And you met up, Carolyn, didn't you, the next evening? Well, actually, before he left the shop, he tried my number just to make sure I'd given him the right number. And then within a, a minute of him leaving, I received a text message from him. And then later that evening, when I went to see my friends and have a drink, he was actually very persistent texting. I didn't respond because I was busy with them. And then he called and I did take the call. And he said, you know, he'd really like to see me again. And what about going for a drink um, the next evening? And I asked him to call me the the following day. I said I was busy, but he was very persistent and he did carry on that evening and actually nearly, nearly put me off. And I wish he had put me off. But I did meet him the the following evening. What did he tell you about himself? Because he was obviously keen to know as much about you as possible and presumably how much money you had. Um, Yes, I don't think at that stage he was asking me about money. I mean, perhaps he already knew, I don't know. Because my theory is that I I was registered with all the estate agents in the town that I was and in neighbouring towns. And they knew I was a cash buyer. And I know that he 
had a lot of dealings with estate agents. I, I, I realised that subsequently. I didn't know at the time. But um, no, we met at a local hotel that was local to me. He said that he had flown in from Geneva that evening, especially to see me. He told me he was a Swiss banker and that he was doing some work up at the local airfield. And in fact, he told me he was hoping to buy it. And his education, did he give you any ideas about you know, his background in the UK before he went into business? Uh, yes, he told me that he'd been educated at Eton and Oxford. Uh, my ears pricked up with that because my father had gone to Oxford and one of my daughters had gone to Oxford. So I, I quizzed him, I, I know about which college. I told him that members of my family had been there. I think he immediately became alarmed. So he, he did give me the name of the college but said that he had, hadn't stayed there because he found the course boring and then he'd gone to LSE and was one of their top students. Right, so he moved this conversation swiftly on. And he hadn't been to Eton or Oxford, had he, obviously, uh, for the record? He hadn't been to Eton or Oxford or LSE. Uh, no, he hadn't. It was just really strange to hear these lies that he evidently told you because he's taking a risk, isn't he, by offering up details like that. You know, it's quite possible you had a close friend or a relative you'd been to eat and you could have caught him out straight away. The psychology of a man like Acklam, ability to tell lies and get away with it repeatedly because, you know, as we'll discuss a bit later, you're not the only victim of his, are you? No, not, not by a long shot. And I think the other thing is, you know, as the... The title of my book uh, indicates uh, I believe him to be a psychopath. I didn't know anything about psychopaths at that stage. But they are able to tell lies with impunity. And they have no conscience, absolutely no moral compass. And actually, they live life rather on the edge in the fast lane. They like a lot of excitement. And one thing I didn't know about was something that I saw referred to as a psychopathic stare. This is when somebody can look deep into your eyes. And from my point of view, I'd always thought that was a sign that someone was telling the truth. And he did a lot of that. To me, it was a sign that he was truthful. But of course, <laughs> nothing could be further from, from the truth. And your relationship became intimate within 48 hours, didn't it? Did you feel like you were in a rush there? Or was it just those emotions, that attraction you had to him dominating? That was most out of character for me. Uh, this was, an, I think, another tactic of his. That was him moving things on at this very, very fast pace, which is, I think, is another, it's a red flag in, in a, a relationship like this. And I, I think that, well, there was a, f a sort of feeling of liberation that I could kind of just do what I liked. And I thought, I just sort of thought, well, yes, let's just go for it. I wasn't thinking this was going to be a long-term relationship or anything like that, but, but I went for it and... Um, yeah, sadly, um, I got reeled in. Because he declared his love for you very quickly as well, didn't he? Well, that night he did, yes. He said that he was falling in love with me and it was a nightmare. And I was very taken aback by that, but I suppose I was also very flattered. And I didn't really stop to think because from there, you know, those first few weeks in particular were just so turbulent, so full of action and excitement. And I did get totally swept off my feet.
I just wondered whether you confided in your daughters or your close friends. Anyone sort of said, Carolyn or mum, are you sure this is the right thing? This man sounds a bit creepy. Uh, yes, well, definitely. My brother and sister-in-law were away on holiday. And I can't remember the exact timings, but it would be within a few days of my meeting him and going out with him, probably the following week. And I texted them and said, you know, I'd, I'd met this amazing guy. And that was about it. I didn't say very much more than that. And I was absolutely shocked when my sister-in-law sent me a text message just saying, you know, that they were very, very worried. They didn't think this guy existed. They thought I was going to be conned out of everything that I owned, that it may very well be underway. And I was absolutely horrified. I thought, you know, where on earth did that come from? And I actually, uh, I, I really took offence at that. And I, I thought, how can you just make a judgment about somebody when you haven't even met them? That was my attitude. And in fact, um, you know, sadly, my relationship with my brother and sister-in-law really started to deteriorate from that point onwards. Happily, it's, uh, it's now much restored. So I also, you know, take the, the blame for it in the sense that I, I really hate being told what to do. But uh, that's quite strange for me to say that because, of course, Mark Acklam very soon was telling me exactly what to do all the time. It wasn't long, was it? before in this fast-paced relationship he was out to impress you still further with his claims that he wasn't really a banker he was working for the security services can you you know recall exactly how he first mentioned that yes well of course he very cleverly didn't directly bring that into the conversation initially but on the night after i met him and he was telling me about his work and his family and all sorts of things he <clears throat> dropped into the conversation the fact that he spoke seven languages fluently. He said he piloted his own plane and he told me he had a photographic memory. So in, with the benefit of hindsight, of course, these were all little seeds that he was sowing in my mind to make me perhaps think that he might be involved in that sort of work. And in, and in fact, just as we were saying goodbye, he said to me, you know what I really do, don't you? And I said, I think you're a secret agent. So he planted that idea in my head. I mean, I can't say I really did 100% think he was a secret agent. But then subsequently, he confided in me that he was. And I still was thinking, well, would he really say that if he was? And then he took me to the MI6 building one day. Well, he asked his driver to drive us there. He said he'd been called in to see his boss. Uh, he was in trouble because of his relationship with me. So this is where the blame started to come in, you know, where he, he started to blame me for various things that were going wrong and making out he was doing all these things just for me. But whatever happened when we went to the MI6 building is still an utter mystery to me. We drove past the building and then took a route which was quite circuitous. I must have been disorientated, but the driver stopped the car. Mark Acklam got out and ahead I could see what looked like the entrance to an underground car park. Um, and there were two armed guards there in, you know, bulletproof vests and holding what looked like machine guns. And he walked unchallenged straight past them. Um, out of sight and reappeared 
half an hour later saying that he'd seen his boss. And it convinced me that he was a member of MI6. I don't know how he staged that. I don't know what happened then, but he did put on these sort of shows and charades that uh, were very convincing. So when did Mark Acklam first ask you for money? You know, he sort of set a little trap for me because I overheard a telephone conversation in which he was talking about a cash flow problem. I mean, I'm sure this was staged. I don't know if there was even anyone on the other end of the line. I rather doubt it. And of course, I thought, well, I've got my money's all sitting in the bank. I can help out. He'd made me feel a bit mean not long before that. So I was only too willing initially to you know, prove that I was generous and this was like a, a two-way relationship and, you know, the, the money was for renovations on what I believed was going to be our marital home. So um, I felt that I should help out with that. But it was, a, you know, it was a loan. I didn't give him the money and all the transactions were referenced as loan on my bank accounts. Right. What was the first loan? You know, how much was that? I asked him how much was needed and he said it £26,000. I said, you know, well, I can help out. And he said, no, no, don't worry, don't worry. And I said, no, you know, I'd like to. And in the end, he asked for a lesser sum of, I think it was about £22,000, which also, with his psychological game, was making me think that he wouldn't take advantage of me because he could have had £26,000, but he only asked for twenty two. And this was for your planned marital home, Widcombe Manor, in Bath, a grade one listed manor house. And that was one which you'd chosen together? Uh, no, no. He seemed to have a property portfolio. When he mentioned Widcombe Manor, I actually knew of the property, a beautiful house. I, I happened to know that it had been for sale. So, I, you know, when he said he'd bought it, I knew it had been for sale. Um, I didn't really question it. I did, of course, you know, express an interest in going to see that property and another one subsequently. But his answer to that was always that he wanted it all to be done and, you know, he wanted it all perfect for me when we moved in. And all along, you know, he was claiming to be working for MI6. Well, I imagine, you know, maybe even the director general of MI6 might not have the sort of lifestyle that he was proclaiming to have. Yes, this is true. Well, he also claimed to have various of his own projects and business interests going on. And he was setting up a new company in this country, which seemed genuine. I mean, it was genuine. And as far as, I mean, he showed me this website of this company. This was a bit later now. We were probably in about May and by now living together. But he he talked about this and he showed me the website and it all looked very genuine. I saw he was involved with very respectable people and organisations. And that was actually true. Uh, some of them, you know, got suspicious of him. So, for example, you know, he had promised the Prince's Trust an £8 million donation. And he definitely had a contact with the Prince's Trust, who um, I know smelt a rat with him eventually, and they wouldn't have anything to do with him. But he was um, doing all the fundraising for a local public school, Clifton College, that was absolutely genuine. I saw a video of one of the big charity events that was happening there. And there is absolutely no doubt that he was heavily involved with that school and those people. And I, I think he used that as a 
sort of conduit into Bristol society. Uh, he, he is extremely skilled at doing all these things. So a lot of these people, all sorts of people, were taken in as well. I read as well in your book that he took a call from the King of Spain. Well, he, he claimed to, yes. I must say, yeah, he claimed while you, while you were making love. I mean, totally bizarre. Well, actually, I laugh when I think about that. Did I believe it or not? I, I didn't d disbelieve it. I mean, he, he certainly was fluent in Spanish. He spoke actually on the phone a lot in Spanish. Did he know the, the King of Spain? I very much doubted. But he'd already said to me that he was a friend of the King of Spain's and he was helping him because the King of Spain's son had been caught up in some sort of corruption charge and he, he was advising him. And I know it sounds ridiculous, but I didn't see any particular reason to disbelieve him. But this is because he is just such a good liar. So that £22,000 loan you alluded to just a bit earlier, that was the first of 70 transfers of money, wasn't it? Which would total £750,000. That was all in a matter of months. I mean, people listening to this, well, a lot will be stunned. I think you'd agree with that, wouldn't they? That is a hell of a lot of money. And it was all your money, really, wasn't it? Because you lost 850000 in total, everything wiped out completely. Yes, or, or even more, because I was actually left with his debts because he'd put all sorts of things into my name. So one could argue that it was even more than that. When did things change for you and your relationship? When did the doubts creep in? Because he was playing the long game, wasn't he, on moving into your supposed marital home, coming up with reasons why the transaction couldn't go ahead or certainly you could not move in. That was the moment, wasn't it, when things turned for you? Well, I think, you see, it was... I say we moved into a house. I moved into a house in Bath, a beautiful Georgian townhouse in the circus, which is one of the most prestigious addresses in Bath. But actually, beautiful though it was, not where I wanted to be at all. And I think, again, this was part of his plan. He knew I liked living in the country, uh, liked a rural existence, so he moved me into a town and although initially I did see him most days, it was only for a couple of hours and then he would vanish. And then he'd already, before I'd moved in there, had said that he'd had to go on a mission to Iran, the first one was. And, um, you know, I, I was extremely fearful for, for his safety when he was doing that. And then when I was soon after I moved into Bath, he turned up one day, he said he had to go and do some missions in, in Syria. And maybe this could cut down the time between then and him being released from his contract. And he turned up with his arm in a sling and all expertly bandaged and told me that he'd been shot. And it was all very, very convincing. And of course, you know, I began to get worried he said that my safety would never be in jeopardy, but I, I didn't actually believe that. He was always drawing my attention to security cameras, suspicious looking people, telling me to keep blinds down, shutters closed, all this kind of thing. And then later that summer, when my car went in for a service, he told me that it looked as though the brakes had been tampered with. So I don't know if you can imagine, but I was at this stage very isolated. I hadn't seen my family. I was fearing for his safety, I was fearing for my safety, 
And that just sort of spiraled out of control as well, because by the end of the summer, he told me that he had a brain tumour and showed me brain scans on his phone and told me about the operation he would have to have. Once he'd put that idea into my mind and he had to have an operation, that also meant that I didn't feel I could press him about my money. That also, it sort of explained where there were any sort of erratic behaviour or things that didn't seem to make sense. I thought, well, if he's got a brain tumour, that explains it. And particularly when he started to get more and more abusive. Carolyn, you knew him as Mark Conway, didn't you? When did you discover the truth about him and his long criminal history? It got to about the 17-month point, and I hadn't actually seen him then for about five months because I believed he was in a military hospital in Athens. That was at the beginning of 2013, having been very seriously injured in action and that he'd then sort of escaped to Italy and was trying to do a deal with the Italian government. And I was really very, very confused. My mental state was really terrible. I'd moved, thank goodness, out of the house in Bath at the beginning of the year in January because I knew it would quite literally be the death of me because I was so depressed and so isolated there. So I contacted some friends of mine who who had a flat uh, back near where I used to live that they weren't using and they said I could have it for three months and I went back there. And then I'd been staying with a succession of friends, literally sofa surfing or just using the spare bedroom and never knowing really from one day to the next where I would be. And it was absolutely dreadful. And it got to the point where Acklam, or Mark Conway, as I knew him, had been saying that I must come out and see him and he'd get air tickets and this, that and the other. The air tickets never materialised. And this went on for, oh, you know, a number of days. And I just got so exasperated that one day I said, look, you know, he mentioned meeting up in Nice. And I said, look, I'll book some tickets. And again, I thought because of his brain surgery that, you know, this had sort of impaired his judgment and his ability to do even the most simple thing like book an air ticket. So I booked some tickets, uh, or a ticket, and uh, I said to him, you will be there, won't you? And he said, yes, he would be there. And I flew off to Nice, and of course, he didn't show up. I think I'd had some doubts, but my own mind was in such a turmoil. I mean, as I said in my book, I felt as though someone had put a stick blender into my brain. I mean, I was so confused about everything. But when he didn't turn up, I just thought no one could treat somebody they claimed to love like this. And I think that's when I, I really thought, oh my God, you know, this is really serious. And then it was a couple of weeks after that, in desperation, very early one morning, it was about quarter past four in the morning. I hadn't slept at all, I was staying at a friend's house. And Mark had said to me, if I was ever worried about anything, I should contact his business associate and he would be able to reassure me and tell me you know, what was going on. So I texted this person, James, just three words, please help me. I got a, a text message back a couple of hours later saying that I could call him. And I called him and I said, 
how worried I was and that I believed that he was meant to be, he, James, was meant to be bringing some tickets and money. He knew nothing about it. And then he said that he'd been having problems himself and he was owed a lot of money. We arranged to meet up the following Saturday. That was a couple of days later. He said he'd found out some things that he thought I should know. He, he told me that Mark Conway was known to everybody else at that time in Bath and Bristol as Dr. Zach Moss and that he'd been living nearby, near the big townhouse that I was in. He was living about three miles away in, in an old rectory in a you know beautiful village just outside Bath with his wife and children. And then he showed me his mobile phone and there I discovered his real name was Mark Acklam. I remembered the case of Mark Acklam, the teenager who'd stolen his father's credit card and flown all his school pals off to Paris for a sort of champagne and lobster weekend. And it was totally devastating. Because Mark Acklam hit the headlines in 1991, didn't he? Since he was three years old, conman Mark Acklam has been pretending to be someone he's not. At 16, he posed as a stockbroker, stole his father's credit card and hired private jets for jaunts around Europe. It was a huge case back then, and it reminds me of the film Catch Me If You Can, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks. Welcome to Miami Mutual Bank. How may I help you? I'd like to cash this check here, and then and I'd like to take you out for a steak dinner. <laughs> In which a real-life, audacious 16-year-old travels around the world using good looks and charm to con people. Because Mark Acklam had been defrauding people since he was a teenager, hadn't he? Yeah, I mean, a lot of comparisons have been made with... Um, the Catch Me With You Can character, who was, of course, also that was a, a real con man. But, uh, you know, I have to say that I, these people are glamorised. Uh, they are extremely clever, very, very cunning. And they do, they live a very glamorous lifestyle. But, uh, you know, I think we have to remember the people whose lives they destroy. So many people in Bristol in particular, I know, just did work for him, didn't get paid. Or, you know, he lived in their properties and that they never got any money. Uh, it, it is incredible what he gets away with. But, you know, he is a common criminal. He's a, a very, very evil person. And I don't like the aura of glamour that sometimes, you know, uh, surrounds these people. You saw photos of him, I presume, on the internet, whatever. What, what went through your mind then? Because that was the man you shared a bed with, wasn't it? It was just appalling, yes. I mean, I felt violated in every way. I mean, I felt violated sexually, emotionally, financially, just in every possible way, just used and abused. It was then that I just thought I've just been a victim, not, I say, not just of, you know, a fraud to do with money, but actually I was a victim of the most appalling domestic abuse and coercive control. I guess, how low did you get mentally, Carolyn, as a result of all this? Because I imagine 
you feared when you discovered the truth about Acklam that you may never get your money back. So how low did you get? I was absolutely suicidal. I mean, I the only thing that stopped me, uh, because I became obsessed with that, you know, working out how I was going to kill myself, but I couldn't do it because I just thought I can't leave my daughters. I mean, I hadn't just lost everything. I had debt collectors coming after me, people hounding me. I couldn't get anybody to listen. I mean, that, this was one of the hardest things. You know, even when I... When I tried to report the crime to the police, I went to the police station and I was just sent away with a leaflet saying, make an online complaint to action fraud. And I told the duty officer, you know, the extent of my loss. I think he found it quite amusing. Which force was that, Carolyn? Well, at the time I was staying with my daughter and they took me to Islington Police Station. And that's where I tried to report it. And um, she came in with me and we were sent away with a leaflet. I mean, that sounds really shocking. Have you received an apology for your treatment? Um, Not over that. Of course, eventually the case wasn't assigned to that police force. And uh, no, I never heard anything more from them. I did (laughs) contact Action Fraud later that day. Again, my daughter was saying, you have got to report this right now. And I was in such a state, I didn't, certainly couldn't do anything online. There was a phone number to call if you needed help. So I called that number and spoke to somebody there for about an hour. And he said he would take down the relevant information. I asked if I could have a copy of what he'd written down. And I was told I'd have to apply for that. That didn't automatically happen. And when I eventually saw that, I mean, that conversation had been reduced to just a handful of tick boxes, you know, on a form. So um, that was really the beginning of another nightmare that lasted six years until Mark Acklin was apprehended. Yeah, because he was on the run, wasn't he, on the continent, and Martin Brunt, the uh, respected crime correspondent for Sky News, covered a lot about that case. Uh, I remember Martin doing very well on it. But he was on the run, wasn't he, Acklin? And you must have thought, I presume, that he may never get justice. Well, yes. I mean, right at the beginning, when I reported him to the police, I had an address in Italy where I thought he was. And that had been given to the police also by by somebody else. But this is where it becomes so frustrating because the police won't do anything until they've got a case against somebody. And that took so long. I mean, it was eventually assigned because I had no fixed address. That was another problem. They didn't know who to assign it to. And uh, eventually it was assigned to Avon and Somerset Police, and but to a, an officer that was on holiday. So that, you know, I didn't think much of that. But I got to see him. I, that was the, the next thing was that I was interviewed by two male officers who seemed to find the whole thing, well, a bit boring, really. I didn't take any notes. So I took a whole dossier of stuff in with me. But, uh, you know, that was just the beginning of an investigation that certainly in the first three years just seemed to get nowhere. And it was that that prompted me, my frustration with it prompted me to speak to Martin Brunt and Martin became interested. And I think it was that because I thought this is the only way that I can raise awareness. Police have been searching for Mark Acklam in Spain where he'd skipped bail for another offence. But in the summer of 2018, he was eventually found in Zurich, Switzerland, and extradited back to the UK for trial. At the 11th hour, Ackland pleaded guilty to five charges, 
and was sentenced to five years and eight months. No doubt putting his hands up would have reduced his sentence, but still, that does seem very lenient for the amount of money he stole from you and the coercive control that you've just been speaking about. Yes, well, um, I completely agree with you. And actually, it was quite galling to think that, you know, this event that had happened to me and the, you know, the theft of everything that I had, it was all my money, it was all my possessions that he persuaded me to dispose of. So I was left completely helpless and at his mercy. You know, I'd also been kind of stripped of my dignity and very nearly lost my sanity and actually wished that he'd taken my life that this was sort of reduced to some plea bargaining at the last minute because he uh, he pleaded not guilty to everything right up until we were in court. It was quite galling. I'm not a lawyer, but I, you know, he slept with you on false pretenses. I mean, that, you know, you could argue possibly that was a type of rape. Oh, I raised that with the police. I'm very glad you've raised that. I don't know whether you read that in the book, but no, I did. I said to them that I would like him to be charged either with sexual assault or with rape. I actually did say that because I said I gave consent for sexual relations with a 46-year-old single businessman, not a 38-year-old married man with two children and a history of criminality. I strongly suspect that we haven't heard the last of Mark Acklam. I mean, according to my simple arithmetic, he could be out of prison, couldn't he, next year? Well, I was actually told by the police that he, in theory, uh, I'm not saying this is happening, but they'd said he could be out as soon as August this year. How does that make you feel? Dreadful. I just think, you know, again, he... We're going back to the sentencing at the time, five years and eight months, and then you think, well, he's going to only serve half of that in prison. I just thought, well, you know, not only did I suffer for 18 months terribly, you know, uh, as a result of him when I was in the relationship with him, but it then took six years of me really pushing. And I just thought, you know, he's taken eight years of my life. And yes, to think that he would just be out there, and I'm sure that he'll be out there doing exactly the same thing. Do you feel you've been let down by the criminal justice system then, Carolyn? I, I do feel I've been let down by the system. I mean, I don't wish to disparage the officers that were working on the case at the end of it. But the system in general, I think I've been let down and uh, I never really had my say in court either. Has he apologised to you? I uh, know, but I wouldn't take an apology from him seriously. Were you in court when he was uh, sentenced? Yes, I was. Yes. Did you look at him in the dock? Um, I did. I had to look over my shoulder and I had to do that just to make sure he was actually there. Uh, he didn't look anything like he did when I knew him. But again, um, my theory is that he was dressed in a sort of hoodie. He looked very dishevelled. He had facial hair, but not the sort of designer stubble that he had when I first met him. Um, and he just looked like sort of some guy you'd dragged in off the street. And um, I asked the police about this afterwards. I said, did he have to turn up in court, you know, in a hoodie? Because I was expecting to see him all smart in a suit. And they said, oh, no, he could have worn a suit, but he chose to come to court dressed like that. And I think that was probably to try and convince the jury that um, 
that no one would ever in a million years think he was a, a suave, educated multimillionaire. And in fact, the police did tell me that his defence in court was going to be that I was the fantasist and had become besotted with him. He wasn't denying that I knew him, but he was going to try and make out that I was the liar and the fantasist, not him. Have you any idea where your money's gone and whether he has access to it somewhere around the world, possibly? Um, I've got no idea where it's gone. If any of it's left, he can spend money. Like I mean, literally, as the judge said, it just goes through his hands like water. There is an ongoing uh, investigation into that, but I don't expect to see any of my money. And the last conversation I had with the police was uh, really along those lines. Finally, Carolyn, what would your message be to women in particular listening to this podcast in terms of the lessons that you've had to very painfully learn yourself? Well, that's a quite interesting question, actually. And just you remind me of um, something a friend of mine said uh, when I told him what had happened to me. He said to me, well, if I was going to commit this sort of crime, he said, I'd be looking for someone exactly like you. And I was really shocked when he said that. He said, well, what do you mean? So this is where I was naive. And he said, well, you know, you're a certain age. I was 54 when I met Mark Acklam. Your parents have both died. You were divorced. All these things would signal to someone that you might have a nice little stash of money in the bank. Um, And I was really shocked when he said that because I had never thought that someone would come after me for my money, either my inheritance or any other money that I might have. But when I think back on it, I think that was naive. So I would say to anybody in those circumstances, well, I, I would just actually now say, don't give anybody your money. I just know that if you fall in love with somebody, those feelings, and I think people forget this, they forget what it's like, that sort of dizzy, giddy euphoria that you experience if you actually fall in love it's very difficult if you get swept up in that to behave rationally and logically because I think it's a kind of madness when you fall in love. But I would just say don't part with any money. Thank you very much for coming on the Mail Plus True Crime podcast. Your new book is called Sleeping with a Psychopath, published by HarperCollins. Thanks again for coming on. Thank you very much.